Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 525 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. I am coming down from a very big week last week. I had a busy time in Brisbane where uh, I went to the opening night of Hamilton. I think I mentioned I was going to do that with superfan Ra Gardner. Thanks, Ra. Then back in Sydney, I was invited to what I thought was going to be a dinner function. And I thought it was going to be a pretty normal affair with some lovely food. And when I sat down, I found, I found myself sitting a metre away from Albo. yes the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. So it was bizarre. It, I was surrounded by tons of security. Well, Albo was surrounded by tons of security, just like the movies. Then I look over at the Prime Minister and someone's showing him a red packet that I designed. For those of you who don't know, a red packet containing money is traditionally given during Lunar New Year. And the lovely folk at Bendigo Bank Darling Square commissioned me to design a graphic of a rabbit. Um, Yes, because when I'm not being a writer and a podcast host, I'm moonlighting as an artist and a service designer. Anyway, they commissioned me to design a graphic of a rabbit to be printed on all the red packets. So then the traditional lion dancers come to the dinner, they go to the Prime Minister's table, and it's his job to take my red packet and give it to the dancing lion. And yes, it was as surreal and bizarre as that all sounded. Now, if you haven't heard, Australian writer Jessica Au recently won the Victorian Prize for Literature for her novella, Cold Enough for Snow. So congratulations, Jessica. And that's an award worth $100,000. Jessica also won the Fiction Prize in the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards, which is worth an additional $25,000. Now, Jessica works part-time as a librarian, and you'd think that after winning two such massive awards, which with such massive financial um, gain, she's going to chuck it all in and go to the Bahamas or something. Instead, she's going to continue to focus on her writing. And here's what she said in her acceptance speech. Jessica said, prizes, they do fade. You're left with ordinary life and ordinary time. And that's just time to think and time to read and time to be. And for me, it's time to stare deeply into the eyes of my cat. And maybe if we're lucky, out of that time, some writing comes. So my writing tip for you this week is stare deeply into the eyes of your cat or dog or bird or whatever or loved one or even yourself in the mirror if you want and make some time to write. I know I'm going to be doing that. I love my cat. Anyway, let's move on to our competition this week. I have three copies of The Lorikeet Tree by Paul Jennings to give away. This is about a sister and brother facing the hardest year of their lives and discovering the healing power of nature. 
Here's a synopsis. Emily loves the bush and the native animals on her family's reforested property, particularly the beautiful rainbow lorikeets that nest in one of the tallest trees. But then her father is diagnosed with a terminal illness and Emily's world enters a tailspin. Her twin brother, Alex, refuses to accept the truth. His coping mechanism is to build elaborate additions to his treehouse in the superstitious belief that it will avert disaster, leaving Emily to deal with a harsh reality on her own. When Alex secretly adopts a feral kitten, going against everything that's important to Emily, the siblings' emotions reach boiling point, with potentially dangerous consequences for them all. A moving story of family, loss and love from one of Australia's most beloved storytellers. All right, so I have three copies to give away. Just go to writercentercomau slash win and follow the instructions. Entries close on Monday the 13th of February, but don't worry if you're at that URL in the future, there'll be some other fantastic competition for you to enter. That's writercentercomau slash win. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? Well, I hope you are because here it is. The word of the week is divagate. That's D-I-V-A-G-A-T-E, divagate. No, it's not a gate that the diver uses. Divagate is a verb and it means to wander or to stray. And it can apply to physically wandering off track or it also means to go off on a little digression in speech. So you could say maybe Hansel and Gretel divigated from the main path and became quite lost in the dense dark forest. There you go, divigate. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1. This course is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Let's hear from Sarah Bailey. My name's Sarah Bailey. Um, I've got a debut novel through Alan and Umlin out at the moment. It's called The Dark Lake. It's a crime thriller. I was working in advertising at the time and I was working at a great company and had a really sort of good career, but I just had this burning desire to write all the time. I'd heard really good things about the Australian Writer Centre's course. Um, the reviews were always really positive and people always sort of providing really good feedback on social media. So um, I just thought that was a really good place for me to start. I found Nicole Hayes, the tutor that I had in the course that I did through the Australian Writer Centre, really inspiring. Um, really down-to-earth um, teaching style, but just a really great way of um, pulling together some of the writing skills that she's picked up over the years. She had such a passion for narrative and structure um, and being a published author, she had some, some really practical um, advice and knowledge to share as well. The process for me was just setting my own deadlines, which was something that was covered off in the Australian Writer Centre's course as well. Went, this is how many words I'd like to have by these different points along the year and then I um, just worked towards getting the words down. And then I sort of um, approached agents, and then the agents helped me approach publishers. In the end, when Alan and Umland decided to publish the novel, and um, that was all confirmed, it was, it was amazing. It was just such an amazing um, experience to go through, and I felt really fortunate, um, but also really proud, because it had obviously been you know, a really hard, um, hard sort of journey to get there. 
Through the course at the Australian Writer Centre, I discovered that writing was something that was really, really important to me. And then, of course, you know, through meeting the people and the tutor that I had, I also picked up a lot of really invaluable skills as well. I think it really just set me off on the right path. Um, and then since then, obviously, so much has happened in my world in terms of writing that I really do see it as the first step um, that, I, that I took along that path. It's amazing. I've, I feel very, very fortunate to be in the position where that's, that's my current life. So I think that was, a, that was hugely important um, in terms of getting, getting started. Definitely anyone who's interested in writing and sort of taking a, a, a more serious step toward that as a career or even just a, a more specific hobby. I think the Australian Writer Centre's courses are really worthwhile. I think it's just, it's always nice to be um, in an environment where people are passionate about what you're passionate about. Um, and I think that the, um, the skills and the information that you get from, from courses like that just, just help you sort of really focus. For me, the creative writing course was, was a great starting point. I think it just made me um, rediscover my love for writing at a basic level all over again. Um, so I think that I've definitely spoken to other friends and have suggested that they give it a shot. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash creativewriting. Now let's move on to our writer-in-residence this week. Elizabeth Coleman is a screenwriter, playwright and novelist. Her latest novel is A Routine Infidelity. She began her career as a script assistant on Home and Away and has since written for Australian shows including Sea Change, Secret Life of Us, All Saints, Blue Healers, Bed of Roses, Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries and Miss Fisher's Modern Murder Mysteries. She's also written plays like Secret Bridesmaids Business and It's My Party and I'll Die If I Want To. Thanks so much for joining us today, Elizabeth. It's a pleasure to be here. Congratulations on your novel, A Routine Infidelity. Um, it's For people who haven't got a copy yet, tell us what it is about. It's about a private invest, female private investigator, Edwina Ted Bristol, who's um, a small, dainty woman and kind of overcompensates by that for that with the um, uh, the need to kind of be really kick-ass. And uh, she's ably assisted by her beloved miniature schnauzer, Miss Marple, who's kind of un unusually shrewd and clever dog. Yeah. So it's and how, how did this idea come to you? I really don't. I really don't know. Actually, part of it was I wanted to write a thriller, but my natural style is quite funny and kind of warm. And I, I was, I was wondering, is it going to be would it be possible to translate that style into a thriller with tension and twists and turns, where people are on the edge of their seat? And I suppose it came from there. And I'd also written a lot of episodes of Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries for the ABC, and. Um, so I learned a lot there about murder mystery plotting details and unfolding the clue trail and things like that. So I think it was probably a combination of those things because I knew it would be smartest to stay within my own style. So I, I kind of, I guess it's cosy crime but with a kick, a bit gutsier, I think, mm, I mm. kind of take. I'd love to talk about your career because you um, are very experienced as mm -hmm. the screenwriter, you've written plays. Can you cast your mind back to, you know, before you even started in any of those uh, roles, yeah. did you always want to write or be a screenwriter? I always wanted to write. At first I thought I wanted to be a journalist and then I thought, 
I'd like to be a novelist. And then I got distracted by uh, when I was in year 12 in Newcastle. I grew up in Newcastle. I went for work experience as a copywriter at an advertising agency and they offered me a job when I finished. So I was a copywriter for a while and then for a few years. And then a boyfriend of mine was going out with a woman who was doing communications at um, UTS and she was actually doing a submission for a TV show. I think it was Sons and Daughters back at the time or something when I, I was very young. And uh, I was like, oh, people write that. It never occurred to me that people write. You know, that write, people write TV shows? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I just never thought about it. Um, and so I'd already been writing little kind of plays and things myself and then I wrote a submission. I started writing some screen stuff and just sending it around and I was incredibly lucky. I got a trainee script editor gig on Home and Away in the same year that I got, I was at the NIDA Playwrights Studio. So I was doing the two concurrently. And um, so, But what were you sending out to to people? Oh, little, little, little uh, scripts that I'd written off my own bat, little plays I'd done. Um, yeah, just things that I'd written for myself really. Mm-hmm. And because um, I've always just loved writing. And um, it was interesting because I sort of found per- writing for, for, for performance was really felt like I'd found my niche, I think. But then, you know, decades on, I'm sure we can get there. But I felt, you know, I'd really like to get back to novels and that form of writing. So you were learning to be a playwright uh, through a course at NIDA and you were a script assistant on Home and Away. So what Mm -hmm. does a script assistant do? Well, back then I was a trainee script assistant, so I was a junior to the script assistant. But back then the the script assistant would organise the writers who were going to come in for the weekly plotting meeting and take all the notes and um, communicate between script editors who would often be freelance and the writers, um, it was pretty. Uh, it was a pretty bureaucratic kind of job. I, I didn't get really get hands on with the scripts until I became a script editor. Um, so you might you'll take notes as a script assistant. You'll go to the plotting meeting with the with the writers and the editor, and you'll take the notes, and then you'll distribute those to everyone afterwards. So they've got a record of the meeting. Um, yeah, but I didn't get my hands dirty script wise until I became an actual editor. And how did you become a script editor? What did you have to do or prove or, 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 or you know, show uh, the people around you or the industry in order to get that role? Well, I'd been in Home and Away for, uh, I would say, several months and then I got given the chance to say they were running late on the studio when they needed an extra scene because the episode was running short or things like that. So you they would give me the opportunity to write little scenes on the hop, you know, things that weren't difficult, but then they could see that I was capable of it. And so then the script editor moved on to somewhere else and so they promoted me, yeah. Right. And then after, when you're a script editor, are you editing or you're actually writing scripts as well? This is a long time ago. I, mm. I'm not sure in exactly how it works now, but generally I was writing scripts as well as editing, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and so you've written for shows, um, obviously, presumably Home and Away, mm-hmm. um, but also Sea Change, All Saints, Blue Healers, Bed of Roses. You mentioned that Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. It's a mm-hmm. mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. 
that's and, it. And, and the newer, newer one, the Miss Fisher's Miss Modern, Fisher's modern, modern <laughs> Mysteries. Yes. <laughs> um, you said that you quite liked that niche of writing for performance. Why? I think I found I had a knack for dialogue. Um, I'm very interested in character also. I kind of tend to sort of start from character and then think of a situation um, that I'd like to thrust that character into. Um, yeah, and I liked, I enjoyed writing dialogue. I really discovered that I really enjoyed that and that came relatively easily to me. Um, uh, so, yeah, I just, I just, yeah, it felt like a really good fit for me, yeah. When you're writing um, a script and you know, okay, well, John Wood is going to be playing that cop or yeah. Sigrid Thornton is going to be in that role or whatever, it's. I imagine it's slightly easier to to write the dialogue and get into the character because that character already kind of exists. Oh, yeah. Yes. What do you do though when it hasn't been cast? It's a brand new thing, and you have to make this character come alive. Uh, and how do you then determine? the dialogue and then when you see them speak it eventually all those months or even years later, does it actually meet with your what was in your imagination? Well, it's really interesting. So what you'll do is you'll detail, you'll plot the character really in a huge amount of detail. This is who they are. This is how old they are. This is what their upbringing was. These are their attitudes to things. Um, so you have, you've got a lot of detail around it. And then you write according to that detail that you're given. And hopefully you can bring this character to life on the page. But then, even better, you get a really good actor to come in. And when they come in, the, a good actor will bring so much to it. So that often you'll be, you'll be at the start of a show and you'll create a character and then the actor comes on and they bring so much to it and they might have certain little mannerisms or they might slip on, you know, little words here and there or an expression that's their own and they become part of the character and then you start writing to the actor, writing to the actor's strengths. So the characters can often evolve uh, a lot when actors come along, yeah. Are you still doing script writing? Yeah, yeah, I am. Mm. What shows are you doing now? Well, Miss Fisher's Modern Murder Mysteries was the most recent, but there's a couple of jobs um, uh, quite likely to come up in the next month, but I'm not allowed to talk about it. Okay. This TV is really confidential. I'm yes, sure yes. Everybody's, you know, the story, the deal. And mm -hmm. so you, you said that you, you know, decades after starting in script writing, you felt that pull to write novels again mm -hmm. and, um and now we have a routine in Fidelity, uh, it's so different, isn't it, the process mm -hmm. of oh, incredibly different writing mm -hmm. a novel. So how did you change gears? What did you have to do to go from writing in such a collaborative process because script writers, uh, many people don't realise that script writers are involved with so many different yeah. people mm. um, in the script department and as the show as a whole. There's so many mm. meetings. There's so many discussions. There's so many. So many notes. 
from so, so many, many people. Yes, <laughs> and and yeah. and the and parameters like oh, we can only have this many outdoor scenes because we've only got this budget exactly. or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, but also, you write it in a shorter period of time. Much. So, much <laughs> what did you have to do to change to switch gears? I think. Um, the plotting I'd had to do for TV was really helpful, learning structure and early in my career working around commercial breaks and things, that's very helpful for story and structure. So I would, in terms of the story, I work with a woman called Michaela O'Brien who writes a lot of television. She's great. She We, we sit down together and come up with the story. Well, I, always, I have the story, but she helps me flesh it out. I've got maybe three pages and then I take it from there. And, you know, um, evolve it as I go. Mm. It was really interesting, though. I, when, when I first wrote my first novel, Losing the Plot, I, I had a little sign. I stuck a post-it on my computer that said, there is no objective voice. Because in um, TV, it's just starting to change quite a bit. But in TV, when I was learning, there was no objective voice. It was the sunrise. She walks into the room. Um, Mary picks the book up off the table, whereas in the kind of writing I wanted to do was that every everything was from a certain character's perspective, whoever whoever was narrating at the time. So if somebody walks into the room in a tight black dress, it, how that will be reported is entirely different depending on the character. Like oh, Mary was wearing a fabulous white, red, black dress and it hugged her body and, Leslie thought, God, why can't I wear, wear dresses like that? She always looks so amazing. Or there's somebody else. Leslie strutted in wearing this ridiculous dress. She looked like mutton dressed as lamb. You know, it, just, it was all really important to me that there was no objective voice. And I kept, I, like I said, I had that on computer. I reminded myself of that constantly. And in terms of the length, the difference in the length, or basically what I did was I thought, well, okay, how much is a hundred thousand words? I worked out basically how much that was in prose on a page on my computer, and I thought, okay, I'm going to assume I'm going to write two hundred pages because I was thinking much more in pages than words, and I still do to a degree. So that means because I already have my three page story, so if I say I've got two hundred pages, that means this probably needs to happen around page thirty. This probably should happen around page 70. It was really that loose. I was just sort of teaching myself <laughs> this probably needs to. And then, of course, you write it and then you go, well, that needed to happen here. You know, that should be there. But at least it's a starting point. So that was. Right. So you were already thinking of your three act structure kind of thing. Um, I don't. Thinking- yeah. I personally don't think in three act structure. And I, ne- I actually never have, to mm-hmm. be honest. Um, I just sort of see. It's hard to describe. I, I just see the whole as a shape and if it's not, if there's gaps in the shape or there's holes in it, then I know it's not working. But if, if it's working to me, it feels like one cohesive shape in it. So I think of it as one, yeah, I, I just think of it as one. What does thing. the shape look like? It what looks is like the a shape? circle. <laughs> circle. <laughs> Mostly it looks like a circle. Well, it does. It only looks like a circle if it's really if it's working. If it doesn't work, it just looks like a complete mess. But um, that's why I I always need to do, and I have always with scripts and plays as well. I do what I call my spew draft, where I just bash it out. And even if it's not, I know sometimes I know I'm writing stuff, 
that I'll end up losing. But it's important to write it in order to know that I can lose it. And I've mm. and then so I've got the whole thing. And then once I've got the whole thing, I can read it and I can go, well, that happens too late or needs to start here or this character needs work or that doesn't fly or that. But I can't do that in isolation. I can't. For me, there's no point in getting one chapter or one scene absolutely perfect until I know how it fits into the whole. Mm. And then I'll go back and edit the whole thing in sequence. So when you are writing a script, because you have all these meetings with all of the other people, you kind of know before you start typing where the story is going. Is that correct? Yes, very much so. You'll have a detailed plotting meeting where you might spend, you know, two days on an episode or even three days and then you go away and you do a thing that's called a scene breakdown, which is literally what it sounds, scene one, exterior, shop, then you detail who's in the scene and what exactly what happens in the scene. And so you'll get a document that could be up to 25 pages. That's for one 60-minute um episode and then you you give that to the producers and the in-house showrunner script producer they give you feedback on that and then you start your first draft so it's very yeah it's very structured and it needs to be because it's a continuous thing and different people are writing different episodes so it has to be very rigorous Mm -hmm. oh yeah and so then did you apply the same principles to this novel? Because you're so used to already knowing what's going to happen, whereas some authors don't know what's going to happen and they just start writing. What was the situation here? Was that a hard habit to get out of or did you just apply the habit? <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. I did not have a D. I had three pages, you know, and it ended up being 360. So, no, I, did, I didn't. But I knew what I wanted to happen. And, of course, things just occur to you as you go along. Oh, that'd be great. Oh, oh yeah. What about that? You know, things that happen within. But the, in terms of the whole, the overall story, the sort of the five main beats, I had that. But I said mm. a lot in between. And, you know, once I found the characters and thought about how they'd respond to certain situations, you know, all of that kind of grew and developed as well. So, yeah, it wasn't, there was nowhere near as detailed as a scene breakdown for a, for a screenplay. Why a cosy crime mystery? I think because, as I said before, because my um, natural tone is kind of warm and comic and also because I really enjoyed writing Misficious Murder Mysteries and I did. I was keen to see if you could have something warm and comic and still make people tense and on the edge of their seats and give mm. them twists and turns and see if you could marry those things. So I think it was a combination of, of all of those things. Um and I didn't, I mean, there's some great, wonderful writing, as we know, that's very kind of bleak and grim and I just, it's not me, I didn't want to do that. Um, yes, um, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, um, yeah. So did you have to take time away from your script writing or did you kind of go, Mondays I'm doing oh, script no. writing, Tuesdays I'm doing No, this. no, no. I, I really admire and envy people who can do that. I'm not like I'm a very monogamous writer. I have to be doing one thing at once. So yeah, I took time off. I couldn't, there's no way that I could write, you know, a third of the book and then leave it alone. I just have to structure it around. At least I've got my spew draft. And I'm very bad at, you know, I heard um 
a novelist in the States on a podcast who write, he created those shows like Chicago Fire and stuff and he also writes a lot of novels and he was saying that he writes his novels from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. every day and then he goes into for a 12-hour day <laughs> doing the TV stuff. I just don't have those skills now. I've got to do one thing at a, one thing at a time. So mm. then how long did this take you, your spew draft? My spew draft was three months and the whole thing to get the manuscript to the publisher was about nine months. So in the other six months after the spew draft was just lots of revisions, redrafting, yeah. that sort of yeah. thing? Yeah. So spew draft, leave it for a few weeks. So because by the time I've been with it that long, I can't see it, you know, the wood for the trees. Leave it for a few weeks, come back, read it, go, oh, wow, that works. Oh, that doesn't work. This needs fixing. That needs restructuring. Story starts too late. Need to start it here, which is going to involve moving all this here. Do that. Leave it for another few months. And in this second time, I would show a couple of people whose opinion I really valued. I would show them. I wouldn't show them the spew draft because that's too early for me. I, I would show them the refined kind of spew draft and then, you know, take their responses on board along with my own for the final version. But even with this, I never want anyone's feedback until I know what I think because I don't want to be confused. So I've written two drafts now. I've left it for three weeks, say, or a month, possibly two months, and I will always want to read it myself and go, okay, this is what I think before I get other people's feedback in case it confuses me because I haven't read it for ages myself. I want to have the clarity of knowing what I think. And then they tell me and I go, oh, that's so right, you know, things <laughs> like that. And so you have so many options available to you. You can do script writing, you can do playwriting, you can write novels. What is the plan now? Especially if you're a, you know, monogamous writer, <laughs> what's the plan to where you're going to be concentrating your efforts for the next few years? Well, I've just finished, I've just delivered the manuscript for book two of Ted Bristol. So um, before book one even comes out, which was that exhausting. So this year I'm, I'm going to work on TV. This year I'm looking forward to somebody telling me what to do. It's, it's, you know, you have to solve every problem yourself, as you know, um, when you're writing novels. It's all on you. So mm. when you um, thought thought of um, a routine infidelity, did you wait till you finished it before sending it to a publisher or did you yeah, already have a contract? Definitely. Yeah, yeah. So at the end of that three-month period, so I sort of spent three, lots of three months on it and the last version I had my own thoughts plus the feedback of a couple of people whose opinion I value and then I gave that version. So, yeah, I wouldn't, I, I just, yeah, I just need but, to feel happy with things before I can give them to people, yeah. And, and it was after that that you got the contract? Yes. Yeah. Oh, no, okay. I, I wasn't commissioned, no. It was um, on spec, yeah. Right, right. All yeah. right, so you'll be looking at, um, uh, you, you'll be focusing on TV in the coming mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. Out of all of the fabulous shows that you have um, worked on, what have been the standouts and why? I think The Secret Life of Us was quite a standout. That was in the early 2000s about the group of young people living in St Kilda in a yes. share house and it was just there was a lot of kind of new and interesting 
things was have the first, well, maybe not the first, but one of the first Indigenous characters in Deb Mailman who just happened to be Indigenous and it was no big deal. It um, The producers, Amanda Higgs and John Edwards, employed a lot of directors who approached things differently because they didn't have a traditional TV background. So, you know, maybe they made short films or and so they took things in a sort of slightly more interesting direction, I think. So I think that was that was really good. I really like writing Sea Change. That was fun because that was just such a such a lovely show. And um Miss Fisher, I really I always really enjoyed writing Miss Fisher too, because it was you were dancing a very delicate dance with that show. Because you had to make it work plot-wise, which is much more difficult than it seems. Um, and you also had to, it had to be sort of witty and fun, but not frivolous and not glib. You know, when you're dealing with crime and things, you have to be very careful that it doesn't tip over into silly or glib. Um, mm. So that's a very, I enjoyed kind of towing that very difficult line. And that's mm. what I've tried to do with Ted Bristol as well. Um, and you just made me, you know, relive my <laughs> my youth with mentioning Secret Life of Us. I was yeah. obsessed with that show. Oh, really? I, <laughs> oh, yeah. I snuck up to that rooftop of that building. Oh, wow. <laughs> just to, you know, take in yeah, the vibe yeah. of where they had their parties and, um, you know, hung out on Ackland Street. And they were because, such great characters too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know. I was the biggest fan. I would go, but that's where that, that's that's the exterior of the house. That's oh, where that, that happened. That's yeah. Yeah, a bit silly. <laughs> All right. What is um your, what are your top three tips? I always end with what are your top three tips for people who would love to be in your position one day um, and be, what, what to, who would love to get that novel done specifically? A good one, a good novel. <laughs> to borrow from Nike, I would say just do it. I love it, yes. I really would. Just write. Um, it doesn't have to be good. I think people worry too much about, oh, my God, but it's not ever, It's not singing. Every page isn't singing. That's okay. It's not going to. It's not going to sing. Just keep going. Get the shape. And when you've got the whole thing, then you can go back and make it sing. But if, you, if, if you're worrying yourself sick about this doesn't sing, you're going to lose all your confidence and not keep going. So my suggestion is just do it. Don't worry too much about it. Go, wow, this is crap. That's fine. It's not going to always be crap. On Twitter I saw um, it was actually screenwriting advice, but I, it's really good for novels as well. Somebody wrote how to write a good script, write a bad one, fix it. I think that's really true because, um, yeah, I think it's very, very easy to get bogged down by demanding so much of yourself that it kind of can crush you. But if you go, you give yourself permission to not do such a great job first time around, then it's very freeing, I think, and you'll probably find that you will do better work because you're allowing yourself not to, you know, mm. and just keep going till you have mm. a shape. And just brilliant. Yeah, just do it, really. Yes. Mm. So they're kind of all related. Just do it. Don't be too hard on yourself and keep going. <laughs> yeah, keep going. Go, well, that's not very good. Keep going. That's okay. I think I saw Elizabeth Gilbert wrote, uh, she had some writing tips and she, one of them was, uh, she said every writer ends day one thinking that what they wrote is fantastic. Every writer sits 
down at their desk on day two, I'm paraphrasing, having read what and reads what they did yesterday and thinks it's absolutely terrible. And the people who turn up again on day three, they're the ones who'll get to be real writers. You just got to turn up. Perfect. And on that note, congratulations on a routine infidelity. And thank you so much thank you. for your time today, Elizabeth. Thank you. Lovely to meet you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Elizabeth Coleman. So for a bit of fun for this episode, I'm going to read out some of my favourite Mondegreens that we were discussing around the office this week. Now, if you don't know, a Mondegreen is when you inadvertently get the lyrics to a song wrong and sing it that way. So, I mean, this is similar to Oronyms, which we had a few episodes ago, but this is specific to songs and sometimes... What you hear is just nothing like what is said. But once it's stuck in your head, those become the lyrics. For example, at the end of the song Bad Moon Rising by Credence Clearwater Revival, the lyric is, there's a bad moon on the rise. But some people sing it as, there's a bathroom on the right. (laughs) Or the Jimi Hendrix song, instead of, excuse me while I kiss the sky, can often be sung as, excuse me whilst I kiss this guy. Someone in our office thought uh, that in the Spandau Ballet song, the lyric, this much is true, obviously from the song True, uh, well, she thought it was, it's chook poo. (laughs) There is, of course, the famous Dire Straits song, uh, Money for Nothing and Your Chicks for Free, which some people sing as, and chips for free. And Madonna's Papa Don't Preach, I've heard people sing it as Papa Dom Peach. And finally, I have to end with a Bon Jovi song. (laughs) It doesn't make a difference if we make it or not, obviously. Famous line, I've heard people say, it doesn't make a difference if we're naked or not. There you go, Mondegreens. (laughs) What's your favourite Mondegreen? All right, this, we've come to the end of this week's episode. Thanks for hanging out with me. I've really enjoyed hanging out with you. If you'd like to connect with me on social media, feel free to. I'm at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Instagram and Twitter, and I'm over at ValerieKoo.com. But, of course, please do join our podcast listener community on Facebook. It's free to join. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. I'd love to see you in there. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.